This week we are wrapping up our message series called Wandering from Wisdom. It's a series where we've been looking at the children of Israel, how God led them out of Pharaoh's grasp in Egypt through the Red Sea, provided for them every, every morning, provided manna for them, uh, helped them with difficulties and enemies along the way. Now we've gotten to uh, all the way to Mount Sinai, uh, where you might remember that Moses has gone up uh, the, the Lord has spoke the Ten Commandments. The people have heard them. They don't have the tablets yet, but they've heard them. And now Moses is still up on the mountain, okay? He's up there. Uh, he's going to spend 40 days and 40 nights up there. The Lord is giving him the law, and so that, that takes some time. So he's on this kind of extensive spiritual retreat, if you will. Meanwhile, down the mountain, the children of Israel are getting a little impatient, they're getting a little tired of waiting. They're getting maybe a little fearful. Their leader's been up here, and they can't see him anymore, and they don't really know what all's going on up there, and so they get kind of concerned. And we're going to look today, we're going to look at it uh, kind of from God's angle. What is it like uh, to be God? And I have to think that it's difficult to be God. I say, well, how is it difficult to be all-powerful? That doesn't sound that bad. Well, I know that it's probably difficult to be God because we at least know that it is difficult, it's tough to be a parent, right? Like, just ask this one right here. You know the feeling, right? I mean, your kids, I mean, no Anderson Hills kids would ever make their parents look like that, of course, but some kids out there might, right? And so if it's that tough to be a parent, how tough is it to be the Heavenly Father, especially the nation of Israel here? What is it like for God when we make choices that, that hurt God, that hurt ourselves? You know, as parents, when our kids make those choices, it brings much hurt to our heart, brings us sleepless nights and lots of pain. What might it be like for God himself? After all, Jesus' favorite title for God is Father. He even called him Abba, Daddy. So, Here's God, the perfect parent, and here's how God, the perfect parent, responds on a very difficult day. Exodus 32, verse 9. The Lord said to Moses, I've seen these people, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now, leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Wow. Wow. What happened? What happened that God would be that angry? He's literally saying, I'm so mad. I've had it with these people. I am going to destroy them. Moses, step aside. I'm going to destroy them, and we're going to make you into a new nation. Well, the Israelites, they had gotten impatient. They got impatient waiting on Moses, and in their impatience, they did a terrible thing. And some of us know what it's like to wait on God and to be impatient. We're not hearing the answers from God we want. Our, our prayers don't seem to be getting through the ceiling, maybe. Whatever the difficulty may be. But the Israelites not only were impatient, they did a terrible thing. Let's go back a few verses earlier in the chapter to see what happened. Verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. 
time out. It's not even been like 40 days that he's been up here. And before that, it was like two months ago that God, so we're talking like, I don't know. I mean, three months or so since God led you out of slavery, the same slavery your, your family's been in for 430 years, okay? That's significant. That's a thing, right? I mean, you're eating manna from heaven every day provided by who? That same God. Are, are you kidding me? You're ready to call it quits just because Moses is slow? This seems a little ridiculous. Well, thank God, Moses wisely left his brother Aaron in charge, right? Surely Aaron will have the backbone to stand up to this kind of nonsense. Maybe. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Uh, Aaron, did, did you fall down Mount Sinai and bonk your head or something? Like, what is wrong with you? What, what, this is a total, God just gave you the Ten Commandments, you heard them, you just broke one and two right here. We, we don't, the, the ink hasn't even dried on these, right? You're breaking, like, already you're breaking 20% of them. This is not good leadership, okay? But it gets worse. Then the people said this, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. No, they're not. Th that's just wrong. That's a stupid calf that Aaron made 10 minutes ago. It didn't bring you out anywhere. It might get you to somewhere bad, but it's not bringing you out anywhere. How can you? No, that's not the gods who brought you out of Egypt. When you walked through the Red Sea, you didn't follow some golden ribeye. It was God brought you out. What, what is wrong with you? How could you possibly? Well, in Egyptian religion, uh, there's a couple of gods at the time they worshipped that were cows. Maybe they're thinking back to that day. They, these gods had represented power, fertility. Maybe they're thinking of that. I don't know what they were thinking, quite frankly. Aaron recognizes he's a, got a problem, though. So the next verse, he goes kind of into some damage control mode. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. In other words, like, oh boy, uh, you like the calf I made, eh? Well, uh, okay, that's all right. We're just going we're gonna, to we're gonna leave the calf here. That's all right. But here, we're going to put an altar, and, and on that, we're going to worship, you know, the Lord, right? The, the one we've been worshiping, okay? So come out tomorrow. Everybody ready for that? Great plan. That's what we're going to do. On the one hand, this seems commendable, right? Aaron is trying to draw these people's attention back to God. But on the other hand... Aaron is playing into the original lie of sin. And that lie says you can have it both ways. You can have God's way over here and the world's way over here and kind of put them together and it'll make a nice hybrid. It'll be just fine, right? Golden calf there, altar to our God there. No problem, right? We'll just come have a little service. It'll be fine and dandy. Nope. Nope. Not how it works. 
and not an original story either. Let's go all the way back, way back to the Garden of Eden, right? Here's Satan's words in Genesis 3. He says to Eve, you will not surely die, for the Lord, for God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, you can have it all. You can have this beautiful garden and, and, and your relationship with Adam and God. And also, you can be like God, right? All you got to do is just disobey. Do that thing he said don't do. Not a big deal, right? Not a big deal because God's just trying to hold you down, right? That's what God's trying to do. Just, just have a bite. It's not that big of a deal. You're gonna, it's going to open your eyes to so many incredible things. You ever fallen for that lie? Sin's not that big of a deal, right? I mean, sure, people, people can still trust you if you lie. You just got to lie a little, right? Like just little. Don't tell the big doozies. That'll probably mess it up. But, but little bunch, that won't really matter. You can cheat as long as you don't get caught. You know, just, just be good at it, right? Who's going to know? Who's going to care? You know, you, you fudge those numbers on your expense report. What, that's the, everybody does it anyway, right? Who's, what's the big deal? Companies got way too much money, right? They're not giving you nearly enough. It's the same old lies, just different generations. So that's how sin is. You see, sin deceives us. It deceives us. It's like a, a Venus flytrap, right? It's, it looks pretty. It's got the nice colors. Apparently, it smells good to flies. For some reason, they want to go in there, right? It looks like a nice place to take a break, have a little snack. It's all good. You're just chilling until you're not. That's how sin works. It lures you in. It deceives you. You think everything's just fine until, bam, that idolatry comes. It's been said that sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. It's true in every generation. Sin is playing the same game it's always played. It will take you farther than you want to go, it will keep you longer than you will want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. We think, oh, it's not such a big deal, right? I can, I, I can just do this thing, right? I can just, I can take a few extra of the pain pills. I, I, I won't get addicted. It won't really be a problem. Or I can, you know, this relationship can kind of start to cross the lines, not cross any big lines, but, you know, just some. It, it won't be a huge thing. I can do this. And before you know it, you've gone farther than you ever wanted to go. And so you think, okay, probably shouldn't have done that, probably shouldn't have crossed the line, I'll just, I'll come back, I'll step back from this. And now you find it's not so easy. You find yourself addicted, or you find yourself used to that income level you didn't really earn, or you find yourself in a relationship that's not so easily distanced from. Sin's telling the same lies. It deceives us. We try to say yes to sin and yes to the Lord at the same time. Like Aaron, we want it all to fit together, but that's not how sin works. 
Sin sinks deep roots into our hearts. It gets us in its grasp. It takes us further than we wanted to go. Look at what happened to the Israelites. Verse 6, the next day, when they're supposed to have this worshiping the Lord, the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. That's pagan worship. It's Israelites gone wild. All the things we're not supposed to be doing. This is what God's people are doing. We're worshiping with a calf right there. Sin will take you farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And about that cost, it's big. Verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people who you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol shaped in the the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Hmm. Now, God did something a little subtle there. I don't know if you caught it, but in the beginning he says, Hey, Moses, look what your people are doing. Now, if I were Moses, I think I would have referenced back to uh, that conversation we had in chapter 3 at the burning bush, remember? Remember, God, when you said, uh, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. How are they now Moses' people? Ever had that happen, right? Like, you, you come home, your spouse has had the kids, and they're like, you won't believe what your son did today. And they never follow that by saying, he got all A's again on his report card. No, it's never that. Your son ate the whole bag of Oreos, wrecked his bike into the neighbor's cat, and peed on every toilet seat in the house. Do something about him. Your people, Moses, look what they're doing. Yeah, God is angry. God is hurt. God is, well, as we read earlier, ready to destroy them. And this shows us something about sin that people often misunderstand. You see, sin is not a small deal. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. It's not the lie that Satan says, oh, it's a little thing. You just kind of put this together and God together and boom, there you go. No, sin separates us from God. It causes this division. It's, and, and here's the thing with God, that God is holy. He's righteous. And so that means that he has to judge sin. You're not, you're not righteous if you just ignore sin. That's not justice. Sin must be dealt with. Sin must be punished. We've got to remember, there's something important about this story. This is taking place long before Jesus has come, right? So this perfect sacrifice for sin has not been given yet, okay? So, so the, the people, they're, they're dealing with the wrath of God because God hates sin. And we say, well, wait a minute, I thought God was a God of love. Absolutely, God is. You can hate sin and still be a God of love. That's, that's justice, that's holiness, that's who our God is. So how does God deal with this, this this tension? Well, he sends his son, Jesus, the one who came down from heaven. He lived the perfect life. I don't live the perfect life. You don't live the perfect life. Jesus did it. 
And then having done so, Jesus goes to the cross. He takes my sin, your sin, all the sin of the world upon himself. The Bible says that the one who did not sin, that he became sin for us. So when Jesus went to the cross, that should have been me. That should have been you. That wrath of God that we read about here, it's all real there. It's taken by Jesus to the cross, who took all of my punishment, all of your punishment, even though he was innocent. He paid the price I could never pay. And so thus we can find salvation. Thus we don't have to be the recipients of this wrath. Instead, we can find forgiveness. We can find healing. We can find wholeness. That we can be brought back into right relationship with God. Not because we're so great, but because our God is so great. That he loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's our God. Our God is, he's like that, that shepherd who's got 99 sheep safe in the fold but he realizes one is missing and that one is you and me and guess what? He'll go out and he'll leave them all safe behind and he'll search until he finds that one. Our God is like the, the woman who loses that valuable coin in her house and she doesn't care that she's got nine others. No, she stops everything and she won't relent in her cleaning until she finds that one. Our God is like that father whose stupid son takes half his wealth and goes off to a foreign country and, and, and goes and blows it all. But dad waits for him, watches for him, looks every day down that driveway and when he sees his son coming, Dad goes running to him because he can't wait to bring him back into the house. That's our God. That's our Father. That's what our Father is like. But you see, without Jesus paying the price, humans are in the position that Israelites were in. We're, we have this sin. It's not dealt with. And so thus, we're judged for it. We're responsible for that. Now, Moses does something interesting here. Moses goes into lawyer mode, if you will, and he makes a case for the people. He says, okay, God, yes, you can, you can destroy them, but here's the thing. If you do that, the Egyptians and others, they're going to look and say, God brought those Israelites, his people, out just to destroy them. That's not good. And remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, remember their, their ancestors? Yeah, they're not acting like them now, but remember the promises you made? Are you sure you want to start that over? Shows the character of Moses. I mean, he's like mad. So he's breaking Ten Commandments mad, right? Like, and yet, he says, no. Why don't we extend some grace to him? Wow. And God does. There's going to be a price to pay, mind you. But God chooses not to destroy all of them. So he sends Moses back down to deal with him. Moses gets down the mountain, and he sees the people, and he's got these tablets in his hands. He's so mad, he breaks them on the ground. I mean, you've got to be really mad to break God's, like, art project here, right? <laughs> That's how mad Moses is. And he goes and he finds the ringleader of this atrocity, his brother Aaron, and he says this, Verse 21, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? 
Aaron says, don't be angry, my Lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me their gold. I threw it in the fire and (laughs) out came this calf. Can you believe it, Moses? Isn't that amazing? Amazing's not the word, Aaron. That's stupid. Nobody believes that. Of course that's not what happened. Aaron made it himself. And Come on, man. This is like simultaneously hilarious and tragic all at once. I mean, Aaron would make the best politician ever, right? See how he quick he passes that buck, right? Not my fault. Just the people, the calf. I don't even know what happened here. Wow. Sin makes excuses. Sin makes excuses. Back again to the garden. Remember how that went? Remember when the people had sinned and God comes down to find them and they're hiding from God? Just as ridiculous as Aaron is here, right? Like you're going to hide from the one who sees everything. (laughs) Look at what Adam says. Verse 12 of Genesis 3. The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. Not my fault. It's her fault, right? Also, who was it who made the woman? Oh, that was you, God. You're partially responsible, I think, right? And Eve is like, oh, not my fault, right? It was a serpent who said to me to do this, right? Who made the serpent? Oh, God made the serpent. Mm, That looks like God's part of the problem again. Sin makes excuses. And the thing about excuses, to anybody on the outside, they look incredibly dumb. But when we're making them ourselves, (laughs) they seem brilliant. Sure, of course everybody believed that calf just popped out of there, right? You know, yeah, I shouldn't be accountable for breaking the one rule in the garden that God gave to us. No, no, not at all. Sin plays the same record over and over and over, but we keep falling for it. You know, there's three responses to sin, or at least three, right? Here's three of them. The first one is blame. Blame great at this, right? Uh, Yes, I probably did something that wasn't advisable, but think about this. It was that person's fault, right? It's the people's fault they did this, right? It's the woman's fault. It's the serpent's fault. It's, It's my parents' fault. It's my teacher's fault. They didn't train me well. It's my coach's fault. It's my boss's fault. It's the pastor's fault. If these sermons weren't so boring, right? I'd probably do better than life than this. It's blame anybody, You can blame absolutely anyone for your sin, and we do. The silly thing is we act as if that somehow gets us off the hook, as if it were somehow accurate. Blame doesn't absolve you from anything else. It just shows that you're arrogant and foolish because you don't, because you want to justify your actions to pacify your guilty conscience keeps us from humbling ourselves before God. Because if I can blame somebody else, I don't really need to admit to God that I've sinned. That's blame. And it's dangerous. It seems good. It's a subtle danger because it's a way of not really owning my sin and asking for God's forgiveness and receiving that healing. Second response is maybe even a little worse. If we're not blaming, we're usually shaming. We screw up, 
committing the same sins over and over and over. And we just feel so ashamed. We can't believe we did it again. I thought I had it under control. I didn't, I I never thought it would get that far. It was so innocent. How on earth did I end up in this mess? And we're ashamed. And the thing about shame is that it's really dangerous because it causes us to go inward, to reject intimacy with God and others. We start keeping everybody at like arm's distance here, arm's length here, right? Because if you really knew me, you might not love me. You might not accept me. So I'm just going to keep you out there where it's safe. Maybe we don't join a life group or a band because we're afraid somebody will ask the questions. Or maybe we do join it, worse yet, and we're just not honest with them because we want to give the appearance of accountability without actual accountability. So that's, there's your line right there. There's things I just don't want to talk about. And the reason we do it is because we're ashamed. We're ashamed. The Bible's really clear, though. John 3, 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. You see, we don't need to live in shame. Jesus died so that you can be free, free from guilt, free from shame, free from the need to blame anybody. That here, My sin, I own it, <laughs> and thank God that he paid the price for it. And thank God that he wants to bring healing and wholeness. It's so much better than that route of shame. It's so much better than that, that pain, that regret. And, and maybe you, you're here and you're recognizing that you've been living in this stuff for a long time. Maybe even decades you've been living in shame. Maybe it goes all the way back to the way that you were raised a friend who said that his his uh, his parent would serve him every morning uh, Cheerios with uh, shame poured all over them. <laughs> it's a weird reference, but some of us have that stuff. It goes way back, or maybe it's just the way we choose to process things. We're ashamed, and we keep that distance. Friends, there's a better way. There's a better way than blame and shame because they don't get you anywhere. No, the third thing, the third response to sin is repentance. Repentance. And in this and this alone is healing and wholeness. Repentance means to do an about face, right? Like I'm going sin's way. I'm walking this direction. I realize that I'm wrong. I confess my sin and I repent and I turn back God's way. I don't want to live your way anymore, Satan. I want to live God's way. I want to stop compromising. I want to stop trying to make these two things work together. No, I recognize those are incompatible. And so I reject the world's way of living. I reject what Satan would have me to do. I want to throw that out. I want to live for you, Lord. I want to live for you. I want to be committed to you because your ways are higher. Your ways are better. Your ways are so much more full than I could ever have experienced over there when I was living for sin. And I want to live into that. Repentance. 
Why do we repent? Well, we want to be healed. We want to be forgiven. We want to be changed. We repent because all these things, and and they're, they're really good and important things, but I want to give you one other reason we should repent. It comes right out of this story. We need to repent because I strongly believe that sin breaks God's heart. Think of that parent metaphor again. When your kids do things that you tell them not to do, it breaks your heart because you know what's best for them and you want it. So deeply, you want it. And it breaks your heart. You, we stay up late at night. We cry tears. We, we seek the help of others because sin breaks God's heart. I was thinking about the golden calf this week. And, of course, you know, it's interesting that they're able to make this calf out of gold. How is it that former slaves have a bunch of gold? Well, you remember the story, maybe. When they're on the way out of Egypt, uh, they, the Egyptians are so eager to have them leave that, that they give the Israelites whatever they ask for. So the Israelites, God tells them they can ask, right, you know, and they ask them for this jewelry, this gold, right? And, and so, so the Egyptians give them this stuff. They're like, yeah, please, get out of here. We're sick of these plagues. You want the necklace? It's all yours. Take it. Just please go quickly, in fact. So this is how they, they get all of that stuff. Now, about jewelry, I want, I want to say something here that, that might be a little controversial here, okay, so prepare to be offended, okay, but I believe that jewelry is a want, not a need. I know, right, so you're like, well, I don't know, I'm not sure. I think it's a want, not a need. Maybe you're like, why is he picking on the ladies? Oh, it's not just the ladies who'd be offended by this, let me tell you. There's plenty of people who take offense to that. But we know this, right? You don't need jewelry. So, so think about a loving dad who gives a necklace to his daughter, right? Why does he do it? Does he do it because this will help her be stronger or smarter or <laughs> successful? No. You can live fine without a necklace. He does it because he loves her. It's a simple act of love. We give gifts like this. We say, I love you and, and I want you to have this. I want you to wear these things. Aren't they pretty? (laughs) I want you to wear these things. Why? Because whenever we look at these things, they remind us of the giver, right? They remind us of the one who made it possible for us to have these things. Maybe you remember giving, if you have a little daughter, maybe you gave her something like this, and she never wanted to take it off ever. Like playing in the mud, wants to wear the necklace, right? In the bathtub, wear the necklace. It's just, (laughs) it's how it goes. Why? Because the relationship with dad matters so much. My dad loves me so much. Look at what he gave me. So for the Israelites, I've often wondered, why the bling, right? Why do they need to take this stuff from the Egyptians? That seems kind of pointless in a sense. But as I read this, it kind of hit me that when they walked through the Red Sea, they could look down and they could remember it was their daddy who loves them. Everywhere they go, it was our God 
who not only rescued us out of slavery, he did it in such a crazy big way. We got all this stuff as a result. We have tangible reminders of that day when we were taken out of Egypt, when we were led on our first steps towards the promised land. Our God heard our cries. He heard how much we, we, we were crying out and how much pain we were in and how much difficulty. And he sent Moses and he saved us. And so now we have these reminders, this, this jewelry that we were given on that crazy night when we ran out of Egypt. And, and, we, and he, we wore these things through the Red Sea and all this stuff because our daddy loves us and he's so good. So imagine the heart of God. Imagine the heart of God when he looks down at his people. Not even 40 days. And he sees them take off these tokens of love. And they take them and they throw them into a fire. And they make a calf come out. And instead of worshiping the one who saved them. They worshiped that fake, stupid idol. Imagine the pain. You're going to worship the, the, the stuff I gave you? This is for a relationship. It's not about the stuff. How could you do this? Imagine how that would hurt the heart of God. It's probably like it hurts the heart of God when I sin. The Bible tells us that God gave me this body. The Bible calls it the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when I don't treat it well, how does God feel? Or God put all of us in the garden in charge of creation. When we mistreat it and harm it, how does God feel? When I take the relationships that God has blessed me with and, and I treat people badly, how does God feel when he so sees his own children treated that way? When I take the financial resources that God has given me and I just spend them on myself and I'm not generous with others, does it still break the heart of God? And this, my friends, is why I need repentance, and so do you. Because our sins separate us from God, they break the heart of God, but thank you, God, you sent Jesus so that sinners like me could be saved, that we could repent, that we could be restored, that we could be made whole again. And all it takes is prayer. It begins right there when we pray, we give our lives to Jesus, and then we, we repent of our sins, and we ask God to heal us, to forgive us, to cleanse us. And sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that that's like a one-time deal, right? Oh, yeah, I did that back in 1983. Like, great, but... Since we continue sinning, we continue to have the need for repentance. So we're going to take some time here, and we're just going to pray in our hearts and just repent to the Lord. And we do it for two reasons. One, because we need this to restore our relationship with God. But two, because this should be a regular practice for us. For many of you, it is already. But maybe for you, this is kind of a new concept. I just want to challenge you. Make this part of your daily prayer life. Maybe before you go to bed at night, it's a great time to review and say, Lord, I'm just sorry for any of these things that I did that were sins against you. Or maybe in the morning or whatever works for you, but please live a lifestyle of repentance, not just a one-time choice, a lifestyle. 
So let's pray together and do just that. God, we repent. We confess that we sin. We mess up. All of us here in this room and online, we so many times we fail to live out the calling that you have for us. All of us, like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to our own way. And we need your forgiveness. We confess these things in our hearts right now. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to her or his own way. But the Lord has laid on Jesus the sins of all of us. Thank you, Jesus. I'm not worthy. I couldn't earn it. I couldn't deserve it. And you freely gave yourself. Thank you, God. God, I pray for every person today who's been living a life of blame, blaming everyone but ourselves. God, may today be the day we just say, it's me. I stand in need of your forgiveness, God. Forgive me. And for everyone who's been wrecked by shame, God, I pray for the one who's been living in this for days, weeks, months, years, even decades, God. Lord, we just pray for your healing. God, I just pray that your healing touch would be upon them right now. We speak against that, that shame in the name of Jesus Christ. That God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would bring healing, that you would bring wholeness, God. You didn't die so that we could live in shame. You died so that we could be set free. I'm asking for freedom. I'm asking for new life in you, Jesus. I'm asking for new power, for, for your forgiveness to change our lives that we can go forth and be free from the power of shame. Lord, help us to truly repent, to turn of those sin, away from those sins and to turn towards you. And finally, Lord, help us to be a people who forgives as we've been forgiven because you are so, so good, Daddy. We love you. We pray this all in your holy name. Amen.